Welcome back to the second part of our crossover episode. I guess we just jump right back into it, right? Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about a band called Pop Will Eat Itself. Nice. (laughs) This seems like a band that really is just constantly moving and evolving and trying different things. And I know that I am familiar with a number of their songs, I just can't name any of them. (laughs) Sure. I was a DJ on uh, internet radio station, Music World Radio, for a while. And one of the songs that you chose for this episode was a regular request on my show. I probably played that song 40 or 50 times, not even kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. This band belongs to a genre that is not a term we use here in the United States. Grebo. Oh, okay. You guys know about Grebo bands? Not at all. Never heard heard of it. Other Grebo bands might include Ned's Atomic Dustbin, Jesus Jones, EMF. Mm -hmm. Cool. Oftentimes, it's music that has hip-hop beats, sample-heavy, often these, like, big processed guitar riffs. Mm -hmm. And then they toy around with, like, some psychedelia-type elements, too. There's also maybe some fashion similarities between these bands, but I don't really know how to describe it other than it looks very late 80s and not the kind of style that you would look back on and go like, oh yeah, that was cool. I want to dress like that. (laughs) (laughs) Pop Elite itself formed in 1986 in England. The main lineup is Clint Mansell, Graham Crabb, Adam Mole, and Richard March. And I watched their first video and they look like a very different band. They sounded like a very different band. It was almost what you would expect of jangly guitar indie rock from England in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. But um, at some point, they started listening to hip hop quite a bit. They got really inspired and they decided they want to try some new things. The first song I'm going to play is the first single from their second album. This is 1989's This Is The Day, This Is The Hour, This Is This. And the song is called Defcon 1. The first thing people probably notice with that song is that it's full of samples and references to pop culture. The most noticeable being a sample of Funky Town by Lips Inc. But Mm -hmm. if you listen carefully, you can also hear some I Want to Be Your Dog by The Stooges. Oh, yeah. And I didn't pick this one up, but there's some crazy horses by The Osmonds in there. There's (laughs) Twilight Zone, the theme song. So... I don't think I've ever heard this song before, but there is one band that absolutely sprung to mind when I heard this for the first time. Can I take a guess? Because I had the same response, and I hope it's the same band. When I heard this, I said, this seems totally weird, and the only thing I've ever heard that sounds like this at all is Sig Sig Sputnik. No, no. No, different band. Interesting. (laughs) No, I am not 
that familiar with the content of Sig Sig Sputnik, but my guess is that they also are influenced by Big Audio Dynamite. This sounds like a Big Audio Dynamite song as far as the way that it's constructed. Obviously, the vocals don't sound like Mick Jones. I would be shocked if the members of Pop Will Eat Itself weren't heavy consumers of Big Audio Dynamite. It seems like a natural extension. I think that makes a lot of sense. Not just the samples from other songs, but also they sample clips of spoken word from TV Mm -hmm. shows and, and movies and things like that. I can hear that for sure. I mentioned Six Six Sputnik, which is a band that... I think is fascinating, and I I really hope you talk about them when you get toward the end of your run on your show. Well, my only personal reference to Sig Seeker's Butt was I remember the hype around that band before they released their first album. There was like a bidding war, and it, you know, there was a lot of press about, oh, this band, this is the new direction the cutting edge and all of that. And then the album came out and the industry just kind of like laughed. (laughs) It was an absolute flop and it just kind of turned out to be a nothing burger. I don't know that I've ever heard any of their music. So it'll be interesting to actually hear it. I think what both bands are doing is they have this vision of the future that draws on so much pop culture and they're pushing it toward this post-apocalyptic, information-heavy aesthetic. The other thing I think about them that is similar is that you mentioned that there was all this hype and then they were kind of laughed out of town afterwards. And the same thing is true of Pop Elite itself and the entire Grebo genre to some extent. This is a band that kept trying new things and was really doing something interesting, but Once we got to maybe the mid-90s or a little later, no one wanted to have anything to do with Grebo bands. The music publications thought they were a joke. And whereas genres like Britpop, people look back fondly on, and a lot of those albums are considered classics, you don't hear a lot of people bringing up Carter, The Unstoppable Sex Machine, or Jesus Jones albums as like important albums from the early 90s. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. You know, for a second... It really seemed like those bands were going to be like the next big thing, but it seemed to fizzle out pretty fast. Yeah, and I've thought a lot actually about why that is, and I don't have a great answer, but I think part of it is the fashion, (laughs) as weird Mm. as that sounds. I think when you look at these bands and how they dressed and what their hairstyles were like, it has not aged well, Mm -hmm. and you just look at them and go, that looks silly from today's viewpoint. Whereas other genres, they still look cool. So they just didn't have a face for radio, apparently. (laughs) Well, the second song that you picked, I believe that both songs are done by the same band, but I never would have gotten there on my own just (laughs) listening to them side by side. Of course, there's six years in between the two. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the cool things about Pop Will Eat Itself is they kept changing and trying to reinvent themselves, at least for a while. So by the time we get to 1994, which is when this next song is from, they had morphed into almost an industrial band. Yeah. Yeah, but there's still like a real hip-hop influence mm-hmm. to it as well. Yes. 
but it's different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to hear a song called Ich bin ein Auslander. Auslander, I believe, translates to something like foreigner. And, outsider. Uh, outsider, yeah. yeah. And um, this is a song which I think has actually aged pretty well, if not musically, then at least in terms of the lyrical content. This is the most streamed song of Pop Will Eat Itself's repertoire. I don't think I've ever heard it before we put together this playlist, but it is nice and heavy. I I like it. (laughs) This is actually the song that, like I said on my show on Music World Radio, I probably played this song 40 or 50 times throughout the Mm -hmm. years that I did the show. It was requested a lot. Mostly from people in the UK and Germany, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and I, I loved it. I thought it was like you said, it's industrial. You know, it's got that grease and grime, and yet it's got this real big kick. Well, before we move on to my second pick, let's just talk a little bit about a couple of the transitional punk bands. I'm referring to it as Punk 2.0 just because I had to call it something. So the two that immediately spring to mind for me, they kind of started out at the tail end of the like 70s, early 80s punk movement. They really paved the way to where punk was going. With Husker Du, Bob Mould was the lead singer of Husker Du, went on to have a a very successful solo career. I imagine, Will, you're seeing a lot of him at this point. He shows up quite a few times. I am looking forward to, on our podcast, when we get to Husker Du and kind of like jumping into it a little bit more, and maybe I will like get the appeal. I can say for Bob Mould's stuff, I had a couple of his albums in the late 80s, early 90s. Always just kind of put me to sleep i never got the appeal of this sort of like punk pop thing but my sense is that will you probably have a a little bit more insight into bob mold's appeal yeah i mean i like i like bob mold and sugar and husker yeah. do quite a bit oh, right yeah. sugar right i forgot about sugar and then rob you are a huge fan of concrete blonde I am indeed, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, me too. So their first album, I believe, is released in 1986, so we will actually cover it. And it's a pretty, like, straightforward, 
respectable punk album. And then they sort of evolve. They do a really nice job at transitioning into like the early 90s and changing with the times. I remember they got a lot of radio play on alternative rock radio in the early 90s. They're definitely one of those bands that rode the wave of trends mm-hmm. with popular music. And that's cool. I'm, I'm actually really impressed that you remembered that I was a big fan. Thanks, Joseph. <laughs> sure. Any other bands that either of you want to sort of add to this? You know, like punk bands that were just starting out right there at mid to late 80s that really kind of just moved on into the 90s successfully? Well, you know, I don't know if it fits perfectly with Punk 2.0, but I wanted to give a shout out to Throwing Muses. I think yes. that's that's a band that doesn't get enough credit. They uh, put out their first EP in 1984, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I think they were the first American band to sign to the 4AD label mm. in oh, England. Wow. If I'm not mistaken, their first album, which is a really, really good album, I'm not sure if it was ever released in the U.S., If that's true, I think that probably goes a large way in explaining why they're not more highly regarded. They were one of those bands that every once in a while there would be a song that would just seem brilliant to me. You know, so in the late 80s, early 90s, they would appear on a lot of like mixtapes that I had. You know, every album would have like two or three songs that just absolutely stood out from the rest. I really liked Growing Muses. I kind of forgot about them. They were a great little band. All right. We get to talk about bong water. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) When I discovered bong water in the late 80s, early 90s, I really thought that they were riding the wave of like the next big thing but then sort of like grunge hit and kind of suck the oxygen out of the room for a bunch of these other sort of alternative college rock type bands that were bubbling up they only released four albums just two members in the band so ann maginson was the female vocalist her day job was as an actor. She was pretty successful. I think she was a regular on a soap. And then Mark Kramer, who is just sort of like the stoner musician guy who just holed away and made trippy sounds and put together collages of music that Anne would come in and do her very theatrical storytelling singing over. Now, Mark Kramer started a very influential label called Shimmy Disc. Bongwater, King Missile, Guar, Ween, (laughs) Dog Bowl. I think those are the big ones. Of course, King Missile is probably the one that, if you've heard of any of these bands, King Missile, you know, Jesus was way cool. Yeah. Yeah. Detachable Penis uh, actually charted. Oh, right, right, right. Detachable Penis. That's right. So this is like stream of consciousness, storytelling over wild music. And, you know, it's kind of funny that we're talking about Bongwater, Rob, right after we did our Patti Smith 
because you're very big on Patti Smith, me not so much. You mm-hmm. like her because of the poetry and the storytelling. Bongwater is my kind of poetry storytelling. Two totally <laughs> different sensibilities. The first song we're going to hear is a song called USO off of the album Double Bummer. I think the first time I heard Bong Water was when I was doing MWR and you were on my show. Um, <laughs> that sounds <about> right. <laughs> now, the first thing that I picked up on when I heard this song was it reminded me of another band. And I thought to myself, Joseph was in a band that must have been influenced <laughs> by Bong Water. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Me and my buddy were hugely influenced by Bong Rutter. You know, our background was in theater and storytelling and everything. And when we discovered Bong Water, we were like, oh, this is interesting. This is what we want to do. I'd like to think that we didn't try and mimic them, but we were definitely inspired by them about this is the way that you tell stories. This is like a new direction that you can go and be very theatrical, but still create music. But as far as I'm concerned, we never did anything that touched the brilliant little nuggets that Bongwater created. So where where are you at, Will, with Bongwater? Not a band that you were familiar with before, right? No, didn't, didn't know anything about this band. And... Um... I gotta say, I find them more fascinating to read about than, uh, <laughs> than I actually enjoy listening to it. Maybe that's not true. I, there's, there's something intriguing about it for sure, but it's not the kind of thing I'm going to be reaching for regularly. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you a fan of like Ween or King Missile or is that whole sort of approach not really your thing? I would say small doses. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the second song, my very, very favorite Bongwater song is off of their Power of Pussy album from 1990. This is their most popular album and my favorite album of theirs. It's a song called Obscene in Pornographic Art. Those other well-hung gods, huh? What about them strip bear 
I want to recommend everybody to go do the playlist and listen to this song all the way through because <laughs> it's astonishing storytelling as far as I'm concerned. I just can't even tell you how many hundreds of times I've heard this song and I never get tired of it. It's cool. I like this one. This is the kind of song that sort of like lives or dies about how good of an actor the vocalist. And of course, you know, that's her day job. So she just absolutely nails it. I I love it. If you are intrigued, you definitely want to start with The Power of Pussy. Just be prepared to wade through some not very compelling stuff to get to these brilliant little songs that are unlike anything that you've ever heard before. But they're sure. pretty pretty singular band, and I think Shimmy Disc, the label, was more sort of influential than it was successful. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at a couple of other notable bands uh, in the college rock quirk here. I love Camper Van Beethoven. Their album, Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart, one of my all-time favorite albums. And of course, Camper Van Beethoven, the lead singer, would go on to form... Uh, Cracker. Cracker, thank you. I wanted to say cake, but I, I knew it wasn't cake. It was Cracker. And then other members of Camper Van Beethoven went on to form the Monks of Doom, which were producing some interesting stuff. Camper Van Beethoven was from Santa Cruz, uh, which is, you know, just right down the coast from where I grew up. And I actually went to school in Santa Cruz for a little while. Will, are you that familiar with Camper Van Beethoven? Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan. I've seen them live. Oh, nice. Very nice. And they actually managed one modern rock chart hit right at the tail end of their career, although it was a cover. Uh, (laughs) Pictures of Matchstick Men? And that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then Mr. Bungle, to me, Mr. Bungle, their big moment was when they released California, which was the late 90s. Rob, I know you're familiar with California because we played it all the time at the video store. It was a staple. California is a masterpiece. I cannot recommend this album enough for anyone who's not familiar with it. They are doing so many different things that shouldn't work, but somehow do. One or maybe two members of Mr. Bungle also were founding members of Faith No More, Yeah, which had more success than Mr. Bungle did. Oh, yeah, by far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, they might be giants. I think everybody knows who they are. Yeah. They're amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know that everybody likes them, but I find them to be incredible. <laughs> I'm a super fan. And, uh, yeah, sweet. <laughs> this, uh, this is one of the alternative bands that really got me into music. I came across them in middle school, which I think is the perfect time to discover they might be giants. <laughs> and I, I stayed a huge fan for a very long time. Their music is just so interesting and so, I guess, theatrical, right? Uh, and their lyrics and just the way they perform. There's just so many great songs that they've done over the years. I actually find that their more recent stuff, as far as the albums go, 
seem a little bit more consistent as opposed to their earlier stuff that just kind of seemed all over the place. Sure. I, I know what you mean. They were really, especially with the first album or the first couple albums, they were really throwing darts. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them were going wild. But, uh, you know, I do miss the uh, the drum machine on occasion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, All we right. have just one more band to take a closer look at. And, Rob, that is your second pick. You know, when we talked about doing this episode, yeah, you were surprised that I didn't pick Red Hot Chili Peppers. And mm-hmm. the funny thing is, is that I thought about Red Hot Chili Peppers. But I ended up picking a band that touched me in a personal way when the band was, was out, when they were recording. And that is Soundgarden. Soundgarden was put together in Seattle in 1984 by Chris Cornell and Kim Thale. They cut six studio albums between 1988 and 2012. They released their first single, Hunted Down, in 87 on Sub Pop. The B-side to that was Nothing to Say, and that was actually put on a compilation that was kind of shopped around and sent around to a bunch of different uh, recording companies. And it got them a lot of notice. They then released an EP called Screaming Life. Now, they released their first album, I think it was Halloween of 1988, on SST Records, and it was ultra mega okay. And when I first heard this band, to me at first they just sounded like another metal band, but I stuck with them, and their songs, their lyrics, the whole sound ended up seeping into me, you know, (laughs) and I became a a huge fan. You know, some of the songs go dark. In fact, we later learned that Chris Cornell had a lot of issues with addiction. He had issues with depression and, and, you know, mental illness, anxiety. And so that makes a whole lot of sense. But I think those songs kind of spoke to people who had a lot of the same issues. And so to me, this is why they're like a super important band and why they really touched me. The band consisted of Chris Cornell with lead vocals uh, and rhythm guitars. Kim Thale was a guitarist. Hiro Yamamoto on the bass, Matt Cameron on drums, and then later Ben Shepard replaced Yamamoto in 1990 on bass. And uh, Ultra Mega OK was the first album of theirs that I had. And did you get it before grunge hit, or is yes. that... Oh, you're good. No, good, it, good for it, you. It was before grunge. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I remember not even thinking that they were part of the grunge scene at first, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> mostly because when I first heard them, like I said, I thought they were just another metal band. I was in high school when this happened, right? So I kind of scoffed the grunge scene at the time mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> said, no, thanks. I'll stick to my sound garden. But... Um, <laughs> They're a great band. So did you listen to them at that time or did you hear their music that early? Honestly, I'm, I was surprised to find out that they were around so early. I've wow. always associated them with the grunge movement. They yeah. are one of the few grunge bands where I actually owned one of their albums. So I had Super Unknown, like uh-huh. everybody else on the planet their biggest, at the time. Yeah, their biggest album. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan from Bad Motor Finger on, but outside of their early singles, I've never listened to the first two albums. Oh, okay. Right on. I chose a song off of their first album, Ultra Mega OK. This song is called Beyond the Wheel.
I like this song a lot. It is heavy and it is dark. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I could sit through a whole album of this, but this is a pretty compelling song. I went back to my notes in preparation for this and I have just one thing written about this song. It's actually a question. And the question is, I wonder how many goats were sacrificed to this song. <laughs> Because, <laughs> man, great. this is some dark, heavy stuff, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a message there for sure. I think when I first heard it, I was a big fan of like that ritual droning sound, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the theme that was running through it. I, I felt at first like the song kind of sounded simple, but you're listening to the lyrics and it's, it's, yeah, it's about the devil or it's about who's really running the world or, you know, who's cracking the whip on on the enslaved masses, right? It was a funny thing is, is they also went as far as to put the song in between the tracks entitled 665 and track 667. So mm. even though it's named Beyond the Wheel is, you know, 666. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I had no idea, but I wasn't even listening to lyrics. It's just, it's got that feel to it for sure. Yeah. You know, this is a band that, that of course, is going to show up on Will's podcast, uh, or has already, I guess. Soundgarden charted 12 times on the modern rock charts, but Mm -hmm. not until 1994. Of course. Mm. (laughs) So Super Unknown is their fourth album. Came out on March 8th of 1994. By this time, they were definitely part of the grunge scene. They were... It was, of course, their most successful album. It debuted at number one on Billboard 200 and had two Grammy winners on it with Spoon Man and Black Hole Sun, probably the two most mm-hmm. well-known songs on the album. But yeah, again, as popular as this album was, they go back and touch on the whole mental illness uh, issue and uh, the depression issue. And I think at that point in my life, it was you know, it spoke to me quite a bit. So the second song that I picked for them for this episode is Fell on Black Days. Just when- Chris Cornell died in 2017 by his own hand, and the band was unsure of what they were going to do, so they broke up. Now, they ended up getting back together to do a, a tribute, and it was really sweet. There were a lot of bands from the grunge scene, from metal, from all over the music industry, mm-hmm. got back together and did this tribute. And uh, I've heard a lot about it, and for some reason, I haven't, I haven't seen. There's a video floating out there that I just haven't watched. I don't know if I will, but <laughs> like I said, it's a band that kind of touches me and Chris Cornell in general, because I've listened to his his solo stuff. I've listened to, you know, Audio Slave, a big fan of. Yeah, I mean, this song, I think it's fine. It's my least favorite on this playlist. By 1994, it seems like a real formula has been established for grunge. And this is sounding like really formulaic to me 
and not nearly as interesting as the first song. And uh, I got to tell you, I got bored by grunge pretty quickly, but that's a different conversation for a different day. (laughs) I will say that I was not bored quickly by grunge. I knew very little music when grunge was exploding. And I actually remember I, I got subscription or whatever to BMG music service. Yeah. And I had no MTV. I had no way to like hear any of these songs. So I was basically buying blind based on album art mm-hmm. and descriptions. Uh-huh. And I remember liking the description of super unknown and I had trouble pulling the trigger because the album art was a little scary for me. You know, I'm listening to They Might Be Giants and I'm looking at, I don't even know what that's a picture of. It looks like <laughs> an evil bat head or something. But uh, eventually I did and um, I'm glad I did. It's, I think, a really, really cool album. And I, I yeah. think this song is cool and there's a lot of really great songs on there. Okay, yeah, you, would, you, you want to hear my little tirade about grunge? <laughs> Sure. Okay. So sure, yeah. When punk was hitting, I was too young to be aware of it. But by the time I got to high school, I, I was sort of discovering all of these cool punk bands and really got into punk. I wasn't a punker, but I was really kind of into punk rock. And then in the late 80s, New Wave just sort of like died. And there was this college rock stuff that was coming up that seemed like really cool. And then grunge hit and sucked the oxygen out of the room. So when I looked at grunge, I was like, this is like punk rock, except for you take out the high energy speed, you take out the humor, (laughs) and you take out the like social conscious protest stuff, which are the three things that I like about punk. And then what do you have? You have grunge. So I got bored with it pretty quickly. I don't think like it's bad or anything. It's just, I'm a punk guy, you know? Yeah. And you know, in hindsight, I totally see that when I look forward at the modern rock charts, that sucks the air out of the room thing you've been describing. I see it on the charts. We go from these modern rock charts that are so diverse, so many different types of sounds to like this very uniform playlist within a couple of years. But, Mm -hmm. um, for someone who, you know, I was 14 in 1994, yeah, and the only music I'd been hearing is like early 90s country music from yeah, my parents yeah. on the radio. Oh, yeah. This grunge stuff seemed so exciting and visceral and like sweaty yep. and real. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And to be fair, the exact same thing happened with New Wave. Within a couple of years, it went to something like very exciting and vibrant. And then the big labels realized, oh, this is where the money is. And then all of these bands came in that just were like pop bands that just sort of adopted the trappings and it just became watered down and uniform and kind of soulless and they figured out the formula and then they just kept doing it. I think you can like look at what happened and kind of like superimpose it over the grunge movement. There's definitely correlations as far as how that played out. I will admit that when grunge was getting big, I made fun of Nirvana. It's not something I like admitting because I ended up really liking the band and respecting the band and really just enjoy them now. I mean, I also made fun of Pearl Jam, but that didn't take long for me to like shake that off, you know. 
like I said, I was into the metal and then here comes Nirvana and, and, and Pearl Jam. And I'm like, ah, oh, who are these guys? But I kind of fell in line. And I really enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah. Just real quickly, we've got one last little category I came up with, the alt-pop that was kind of bubbling up in 87, 88. Will, at one point when we were kind of planning out for this, you mentioned game theory, which I was pleased to hear. I was a huge game theory fan, and I thought that they were going to be big, but it didn't quite end up that way. Do they ever touch the modern rock charts? No, they don't. And I honestly can't remember how I stumbled upon this band, but um, I'm so glad I discovered them. I really like them a lot. And I have a special place in my heart for bands that somehow completely eluded me. Like I had no idea they existed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just more fun and more exciting when you go like, wow, how did I compare? Completely yeah. overlook this band, and they've got all of this great music. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I was buying Game Theory albums in real time as they were coming out in the late 80s and early 90s, and rock critics were saying, oh, this is the new Jesus of Cool and, and all of that, but it just didn't quite happen. Other bands I have in my notes is in this general category is the Hootie Gurus. So the Hootie Gurus started out as sort of like a post-punk band. Their first album, Stone Age Romeos, was pretty cool. I imagine that they pop up a lot on the modern rock charts in the early 90s. They charted one time. They had a single hit. It went to number one for three weeks, and the song was Come Anytime. Mm -hmm. Wait, no, I could be wrong. Hold on, maybe a second one came. Huh. Oh, they did, yeah. Uh, Miss Free Love 69. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> so when I remember. And they went from a band that I thought was really cool to something that just drove me nuts. The Smithereens were kind of like that too. Blood and Roses. Are you guys familiar with that mm-hmm. song? That was yeah. That was like their first notable single. And then by the early 90s, they were doing just pretty straight ahead rock pop yep yeah and that's when they charted they put five songs on the charts especially for you is really very poppy but it's poppy in a different way than they're kind of like really obvious stuff and i remember just adoring that album when it came out their second album green thoughts was pretty good too and then will you added the jesus and mary chain yeah. Yeah, good choice. Yeah, especially with uh, British bands. These guys were just so influential. And when I read about bands coming into the 90s, like all of these British bands just cite Jesus and Mary Chain as one yeah. of their favorites or one of their big influences. You know, another one we should throw in there is Love and Rockets. I think mm-hmm. Love and Rockets kind of like started out at the tail end of the post-punk movement and then continued in through the late 80s into the early 90s. Well, we've got one more Pixie song to talk about. That's my pick. Both of you mentioned that you kind of prefer the earlier Pixie stuff to the the last couple of albums before their initial breakup. I like all of the stuff that they did in the late 80s, early 90s. And I particularly like Bossa Nova. It was their third full-length album. It is a very slick, very well-produced album compared to like their 
EP or Surferosa, which was much more rough around the edges. But even though it was so produced, they still managed to get this sound to them that was pretty high energy and abrasive and just kind of sounded cool and hard, particularly in the guitars. I would say of their albums, Bossa Nova is their poppiest one, but it's still pretty hard, which I like. And I think a perfect example of that is the song Hangwire. So that's my choice for a Pixie song. I really like this song, but I'm reminded that I I don't really dislike any of their stuff. You know, I am still favoring their earliest stuff, but this is a good tune. Well, I think we need to wrap it up. So, Will, this is, I'm not sure what the audio equivalent of a cinematic universe is, but uh, your podcast and our podcast are in it now. (laughs) All right. Had a really good time tonight. Yeah, Yeah. this has been a lot of fun. I'm so excited that we get to talk about these bands that Rob and I never are going to have an opportunity to on our regular episode. Yeah. Speaking of which, could you tell all of my listeners more about your show and where they could find your podcast? It's called Deep Dives and Deep Cuts, the history of punk, post-punk, and new wave 1976 to 1986. We started in 1976, and typically every month we tackle one or two months chronologically where we try to cover just about every full-length album release that is a new wave or punk. We may miss a couple here and there, but our listeners keep us straight, and they remind us of what we need to go back and (laughs) and add in. (laughs) We're always playing catch-up, so that is our goal for sure. Yeah, well, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I want to just thank you guys again for coming up with the idea, honestly, and getting this all going. I'm glad we could do this. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Before I get going, I'd like to take a moment to promote some new music. That's not something I usually do, but the label asks nicely, and I like the band. So I'm going to leave you all with a tune from a Scottish indie pop band called The Orchids. Appropriately enough, they released their first single, I've Got a Habit, way back in 1988. The band broke up in 1995, reformed about a decade later, and next month they'll be releasing their new album, Dreaming Kind. If you like indie pop, I think you'll like this. Here's the second single from the new album, Didn't We Love You.
reasons starting to eat. 